This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding, a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next. I welcome a new guest each episode, and we take a deep dive into their personal journeys, exploring the twists and turns their lives have taken to better understand what these pivotal moments mean. On today's episode, Sir Megdi Aoub tells me why he has always worked to push new frontiers in cardiology. Pushing frontiers is never easy. Everybody is against you. They say, have that been tried before? Uh, are you experimenting on patients for your personal glory, and that used to upset me, you know, and it's nothing to do with personal glory. Actually, it was very, very difficult because once you go out beyond what is known, you are completely in the dark, you are on your own, and that is very destabilizing. But I was doing it on behalf of the patient because this patient-doctor relationship was as I keep calling it, sacred. Sir Megdi Aoub has almost single-handedly revolutionized cardiology from his early days as a junior doctor in 1960s London to retirement from his beloved NHS in 2001. He performed the first combined heart and lung transplant in 1983, the first domino operation in 1987, where he transplanted a donor's heart and lungs to a 50-year-old woman with failing lungs, then giving her healthy heart to a 34-year-old man. Along the way, he established the largest heart and lung transplantation program in the world at Harefield Hospital in the UK, where more than 2,500 transplant operations have been performed. And yet, as I list these groundbreaking procedures, it's easy to forget that there was a time when he was considered a dangerous maverick, pushing the boundaries of what was possible on the operating table and going head-to-head -head with the cautious British medical establishment. Lawsuits, negative press and persistent doubts hung over him. However, one thing rarely wavered, and that was the support and faith patients' families had in the prof, even when outcomes were bad. He has, of course, been vindicated, and then some. Today, Professor Yaoub dedicates his time to his Chain of Hope charity, shepherding the construction of state-of-the-art centers in Cairo and Kigali, Rwanda. These new centers follow the incredible success of the Aswan Heart Center in Upper Egypt. His much-anticipated biography, A Surgeon and a Maverick, The Life and Pioneering Work of Megdi Aoub by Simon Pearson and Fiona Gorman is now available at AUC Press. He has pledged a percentage of the book royalties to the Megdi Aoub Foundation in Cairo, you can find more information on both the foundation and the book in our show notes. Professor Yaoub has been on my top 10 list of dream guests since the show began in 2021. He was a joy to interview and the breadth of his knowledge is incredible. If anything, our chat was all too brief. Like many of my guests, Professor Yaoub knew exactly what he wanted to do at an early age. My dad was a doctor and I was watch him, watching him with admiration. 
And then he lost his younger beloved sister uh, due to narrowing of the mitral valve, and it just destroyed him. He had a nervous breakdown, and that's the... I declared I was like four or five, something ridiculous. And uh, I said, well, I, I would like to be a heart surgeon. Why did I say that even at that time? Because I felt uh, already uh, this uh, inequality in healthcare delivery. And that's continued with me uh, when I graduated uh, from Asri Laini the Cairo University, uh, during my residency, uh, I was a houseman, and uh, I befriended a young boy aged seven. Uh, I remember him very vividly. I think his name was Ahmed. And Ahmed was a little boy, was very, very intelligent, uh, but he had free leakage in his aortic valve, the valve coming out of the heart. And what happened to him, that he every night he would develop uh, pulmonary edema, that is water on the lung, and cannot breathe and cannot sleep. And uh, I used to go in the middle of the night again and sit with him, give him literally a placebo injection just to convince him that we are caring for him and continue talking to him until he goes to sleep. That happened on almost nightly basis, it affected me in a very big way because I thought, my God, uh, this is the mechanical lesion and the rest of the heart was bump pumping all right. Uh, and Ahmed knew at this very early age that he was going to die uh, in a short time and he accepted it. And that just upset me no end. And I said, God, you know, a mechanical lesion should be one day somehow be repaired, particularly like opening the mitral valve from my aunt and so on. These are uh, all right, um, isolated incidences, but left a very big mark on my conscience and my will. It's fascinating how these um, these experiences when we're very young uh, leave such a formidable impact on us and they, they spur you on to, to make life-altering decisions. Um, I know that after this, you, you moved to the UK. You, you chose to work under Professor Russell Brock. Um, you found yourself uh, working um, at the NHS, but then decided to take a one-year uh, post at the University of Chicago, only to then come back to the UK and go back to the NHS. But I wondered what made you decide to try the US? What was it that you thought perhaps was lacking in the UK that you thought you might find in the US? What was the trigger for that? At that time, um, at least there was um, a feeling uh, that research uh, is more advanced in the US. And uh, all young people wanted to spend from the UK, uh, spend some time in the US to get more familiar uh, with research. I mean, I think that has been addressed since then, uh, that research efforts uh, in uh, the UK and Europe is just as good, if not better, than the US at time. Even at that time, I realized that uh, 
the solution for um, diseases and like in heart disease, heart disease uh, could only be solved uh, by applying uh, science to it and that uh, research was a fundamental part of the service and that's continued with me throughout uh, but that's the reason why I went mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Chicago at yes. the time. You then returned to the UK and went back into the NHS and what is it about the NHS model that appealed to you? The idea of equality of medicine for all, was that that was that what appealed to you? Yeah, absolutely. Equity is uh, is fantastic, and I uh, sampled that firsthand uh, when I uh, practiced in uh, Chicago. Uh, I loved Chicago in a big, big way uh, because I identified with medical students, and we used to work all night, uh, either experiments or reading or, uh, but doing experimental procedures. When we had an emergency during the night, uh, the kids worked with me all night, running around, getting blood, getting this and that. And uh, uh, one notable example, one evening, we had a a relatively young person with a ruptured uh, main vessel coming out of the heart, and he was just going to die any minute. And uh, we rallied around all night, literally, uh, until we could save him. And uh, two weeks later, he comes in and says, Doctor, uh, I have paid $50 and you are 10 minutes late. That was really bad because we said, we don't care about your $50. We don't get it anyway. The students were standing by looking at the x-rays and thinking, my God, this guy was going to die, and now he is a picture of health. And they were proud of that. And we were not thinking about the money. Actually, we were extremely hurt that he is treating us as uh, a commodity. A service. Yeah, service. We paid $50 as if he's going to the supermarket. Yeah. And that will never happen in the UK. Patient-doctor relationship, uh, even if it is not as spectacular as I'm, I've just mentioned yeah. it, the patients always come back to you and say, doctor, how lovely to see you. Uh, yeah. Because this, uh, uh, what I call the sacred relationship between the patient and doctor is absolutely essential, not only for the patient, but for the doctor, of course, you, you feel that you, I am the advocate of the patient. I'm going to try harder, etc. But to say I bought your services and you are just like a, a piece of merchandise yeah. is very hurting yeah. and bad for the patient and bad for the doctor. Yeah. So that's why I love the NHS with all its problems. Nothing in life doesn't have problems, and uh, rather than throw it away, uh, mend it. Yeah, I think the story you just shared uh, it tells a lot about the American character versus the British character as well. It's very monetary based in America, but uh, 
but Britain, you know, it's it's quite different. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your attitude towards patients. You are clearly a doctor who puts a patient above all else, and you have been willing to fight for what you can provide these patients, um, fight the establishment, fight hospitals, fight government, fight laws, etc., etc. What made you, as an individual, keep pushing the envelope, keep saying, we need to try it? Um, all throughout the 70s and the 80s, all these amazing operations that were the first of their kind, when everyone was pushing against you and hope, trying to prevent you doing uh, all these experimental procedures. What was the, the motivation for you to keep going for that? Uh, I was simply acting as, again, uh, the patient's advocate. Now, pushing frontiers is never easy uh, because uh, everybody is against you. They say, have that been tried before? Uh, are you experimenting on patients for your personal glory? And that used to upset me, you know, and it's nothing to do with personal glory. Actually, it was uh, very, very difficult because once you go out beyond uh, what is known, you are completely in the dark, you are on your own, and anything can happen. And that is very destabilizing. But I was doing it on behalf of the patient, and I wanted to do my utmost and a bit more. And with basic science, with logic and so on, you think oh, this is a reasonable thing to try. But people say, has it been tried before? Have you done it in animal model? Have you do, uh, done it in the uh, preclinical on the bench and all this and that, like what happens now? That pulls medicine back. You really, like Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, says medicine is not like that. It's not moving slowly uh, in a predictable manner, but there are leaps, and these leaps uh usually can be reasonable but it has to be audited very very heavily and that's good that uh, you nobody is above criticism and uh, what the debates which went on were actually enjoyable and i took part of them uh criticizing myself uh, a lot of the time and people say why are you criticizing well, in a proper-like manner, I wanted to reach the truth and to benefit my patient to the utmost, and that was not easy. Uh, so that is the story of uh, pushing frontiers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, in the process uh, suffering, but also enjoying uh, defying uh, dogma. When we come back in a moment, Professor Yaoub tells me about his decision to publish a biography and how he feels about the philosophical and theological sides of life as a doctor. That's right after this break. 
This episode is brought to you by EFG Holding. For 40 years, EFG Holding has been realizing more for its clients across its three distinct verticals, EFG Hermes, the investment bank, EFG Finance, the non-bank financial institutions platform, and AI Bank, the commercial bank for clients looking to EFG Holding as a gateway to the most compelling equities in frontier and emerging markets. EFG Holding is for investors looking into renewables, healthcare, and education, for consumers seeking innovative solutions to achieve financial freedom, from purchasing a home to educating their children, for businesses of all sizes working to unlock their full potential, for shareholders who require visibility, profitability, and confidence in our growth strategies, and for communities in need of sustainable development to drive change. EFG Holdings' goal is to build an ecosystem of businesses that work seamlessly together to provide clients with best-in-class, end-to-end financial solutions at every stage of their lives or the growth of their businesses, creating a positive impact on our society, economy, and the environment. EFG Holding is a trailblazing financial institution with a universal bank in Egypt and the leading investment bank in the Middle East and North Africa. See the world differently and realize more with EFG Holding. Welcome back. This is my conversation with Sir Meghdi Aoub. You've got an amazing biography coming out. And um, I wanted to know uh, what made you decide that this was the right time for you to to sit down with, with the two authors and talk about your life journey. I always maintain that uh, writing a book on autobiography anyway uh, is a waste of time for two reasons. One that uh, something else has to go and that really even at my age and my time in life very very busy doing many things so i didn't want to give up something professional for writing the book uh and uh, the second i was uh put off but autobiographies uh, putting the the person uh, uh, himself on a pedestal because I do not consider myself any, anybody special. I just uh, am a person enjoying doing his uh, job. Uh, why I changed my mind is because uh, I, I got really uh, uh, convinced by my daughter as well as by the two uh, reporters from the Times uh, that they are going to write something responsible, humanistic, uh, w- with science, and uh, will not involve me in too much work. They will just come weekends and talk to me only. And the uh, other thing is they point out uh, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and don't put it, put me on a pedestal. So that was a very important thing. And I saw the writings of uh, the Battle of Britain uh, showing that they really concentrated on the humanistic part of the Battle of Britain. The final point was that the, uh, I, when I go around the world uh, in Yemen, anywhere in South America, in Syria, I find uh, a lot of young people saying, we went in medicine just because we knew about you. So I wanted to give them the true story of uh, medicine. It's not a, an easy journey. 
but it's really worthwhile. So I wanted to make other people see uh, the value of doing something for the community. So these are uh, what convinced me to change my mind. You've spoken a lot today uh, with me about um, not having the need for recognition in yourself um, of of doing this because it's your mission, it's your calling, vocation, medicine is a vocation. But I wonder whether now that you look back on, on all those you know, very uh, difficult early years where you were pushing the envelope. Do you feel a sense of vindication now that all that you had pushed for has come about successfully, is being replicated around the world? Do you have a feeling of vindication now? Yeah, I have a feeling of satisfaction. Not all of them have been successful, uh, but... Uh, the majority, and that gives me a lot of happiness. Uh, but I still feel uh, that uh, the satisfaction rather than the um, the macho thing that oh, I told you, that I am wonderful, that's a really bad feeling because uh, arrogance is uh, a recipe for disaster. And I tell that to all my uh, trainees, whether they are scientists or clinicians, that if you are arrogant, you think you're at the top of things and you're always right, you will never progress. Uh, And that is both in science and... uh, So I'm not arrogant and I just would like to point out again uh, that uh, I was just doing my duty and in so doing, uh, that gives me happiness yeah. and satisfaction, uh, regardless of anything else, mm. what other people say. I wanted to ask you a couple of maybe more philosophical questions, which I'm sure you've confronted across uh, across your career, which is how do you um, answer people who talk to you about religion and say to you, this is God's will um, when someone refuses an operation or if um, an operation goes bad. How do you deal with that? And how do you must have come across people who have been anti-medicine and anti-progress in medicine? How have you rationalized that with them, uh, convinced them of the scientific route and has that evolved with time? And I'm I'm not just thinking of the perspective from where I'm sitting in the Middle East, where uh, you know Islam um, ha- has certain prescripts. But I'm also thinking of your earlier career in the UK, where a lot of people were not wanting to go into the pioneering uh, realm when it came to medicine. Yeah, I uh, deal with that relatively easily. I say uh, God or the the powers, whichever they are, uh, whoever they are, uh, do not want you to just sit there and do nothing and say they will do everything. You have to be trying yourself uh, and uh, otherwise you are totally negligent. And uh, 
religion can be good and can be bad because uh, the goodness is that they give hope and um, a strong belief that I should continue. And uh, there is one example which I always remember and quote uh, in Jehovah's Witnesses who would refuse uh, to allow uh, giving blood to their children. And I was doing a lot of complex operations uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses, but I said to them, if the time comes for this tiny baby who will need blood, uh, I will give the blood. And they said, no, 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 that's against our religion. Okay, I respect your religion, and that's why I'm trying to do the operation, and in 90% I get away with it. But in the 10%, when we need to give blood, my religion dictates that I have to give blood because I cannot allow a baby to die in front of my eyes when I can prevent it. Guess what they say? Oh, now you respect our religion? We respect your religion of not allowing people to die. So is this mutual respect uh, of each other different religions and different beliefs is fundamental in dealing with the problems. When we come back, Professor Yaoub tells me how he continues to contribute to medicine post-retirement. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to my conversation with Sir Meg Diaoub. This show, What I Did Next, focuses on people's pivot points in life and how these pivot points take you from one place to the other. Sometimes they're unconscious. Sometimes they're they're done with um, with um, you know uh, with with purpose. And looking at your career and all of the operations that you pioneered it's hard to pinpoint one or two pivots i mean to me it seems like each one was a pivot not just in your own life but in the in the trajectory of of cardiac uh surgery um if you could pick one or two of these points which for you would be would stand out as for yourself uh you know important but also for the for the um for the specialty of, of cardiology as well? And that's a very hard question. It is like asking uh, which of your children you love most. Uh, I love them all. Uh, and I think each one of them has its own merit. Uh, so it's very difficult. But if you say, ah, oh, but what, you must enjoy something because it has uh, had a, a massive uh, or a large impact. Uh, there are things like uh, valve conserving operations for aneurysms, 
I started that and it has benefited many, many people in different ways after a lot of debate. And the other one is the arterial switch operation in infants and neonates. Uh, that was a, quite a, an achievement. It wasn't only me. There was like uh, at that time ideas mature and there were many of us uh, working on it uh, both in South America and almost unknowingly uh, moving in the same direction. And uh, that was quite an interesting thing because there are thousands and thousands. And that process continues today because in Aswan, we still, with my group, pioneer very new operations to try and uh, make it easier and more applicable to the developing world who cannot afford very expensive conduits or uh, uh, keeping the children in hospital for a long time, etc., etc. All that is very appealing because it saves lives. I know that you, you retired kicking and screaming. You didn't really want to go at all, but um, the official retirement age had uh, crept up on you. Um, but you continued with your endeavors through the Chain of Hope. Uh, tell us a little bit about your philosophy for that and how it evolved and where things are now with it. Uh, the Chain of Hope is one of uh, the efforts, and it was one of the biggest effort or earliest ever efforts uh, to actually... Um, build a sustainable system uh, which serves underprivileged communities and perform research and uh, make sure that all the endeavors, either research or, or surgery or cardiology, uh, are all done by local people, and that is ensured sustainability. But since then, uh, the biggest hospital is the one in Aswan, Aswan Heart Center, because uh, going on missions uh, for very short times uh, is very useful uh, to pointing out the need and how things can be done. But in the longer term, uh, Aldo Castaneda, who is one of my idols, used to say it is uh, surgical tourism. Uh, but it does serve something. The important thing is to have something sustainable for the future, which will continue a long time after mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. gone. And uh, there are efforts. Uh, one is a, a huge hospital uh, just by the pyramids in Giza, and that is... Uh, uh, will be open early next year. I just am curious to de develop a little bit this idea that you mentioned of surgical tourism. And I know that Chain of Hope, when it started, you and your team of uh, volunteer doctors would travel to the Caribbean and to various other places underdeveloped to provide know-how uh, in conducting operations. But And I find it interesting that with experience now, you are realizing that having a solid base is 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 more sustainable um but are you still conducting those uh, missions as well or is it now more focused on hospitals 
we still conducting missions and helping groups and that's really important to point out uh, to the local population as well as in the UK and the US the need uh, because by going doing something which could not have been done and the children would have died and we ensure that a team will remain there until the last child has gone home and importantly follow them through uh, follow up is uh, mandatory uh, that's really essential because uh, if you don't do it people in that country forget that there is a need and they say oh we, you know we accept it uh, children do die i don't think children just do die from the uh, no obvious reason, but you point out, no, these children do not deserve to die, and we can save a few, and then you have to start helping us and building a sustainable system here. And that is the same happens in the UK and the US, when you say, oh my God, look at these uh, children, mm -hmm. deserving mm -hmm. children, mm -hmm. how they have improved, and we love them, and we go and see them. and So it is essential to continue to do that on a selective basis to point out that there is a need and to identify people who are called stakeholders for the future who will be useful in the sustainable system. So it is uh, something which is still necessary as we speak. I know that you have uh, passionate hobbies, partly very well known as your hobby of gardening. Um, and I wondered whether you uh, are able to uh, spend your time reading or watching anything, um, documentaries, anything that's left an impact on you recently. I love gardening because... Uh, it's related uh, to what I do in terms of life, uh, seeing things grow, uh, looking after uh, plants and individuals who require special care uh, and see them bloom and do wonderful things. So that is something I always loved since my childhood and continue to do so. Uh, mm -hmm. With regard to reading, uh, I am most of the time reading scientific journals uh, because uh, the progress in science is uh, incredibly fast. And uh, in my job, I would like to be right at the edge of what's happening. And almost every hour, there are new things happening. So I do that, uh, and I do that usually during the night between uh, 2 and 4 a.m. Uh, but also, I love to catch up with history uh, because uh, I'm totally fascinated uh, by what has happened in the past, particularly uh, as it relates to science and scientists. So I love to read about uh, the life of Robert Koch 
uh, of uh, other people in science, the German scientists who really laid the foundation for true science, uh, Galileo Galilei. Uh, it's very inspiring and uh, to know who they are and how they struggled and how they uh, enjoyed what they were doing uh, is a great thing to me. I'm curious, you you said something just now that caught my attention. You said that you do your your uh, hobby reading between 2 and 4 a.m. Uh, I just wondered, <laughs> you obviously don't need much sleep. I do, actually. <laughs> How do you manage that? I go to bed relatively early, uh, but I wake up just after midnight or 1 o'clock, and instead of wanting to go back to sleep, uh, I start reading and enjoying myself. And uh, I found over the years that that's a very, very good time, productive time when things are quiet. And uh, I, yeah. my mind is even working much faster than during the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, recently, there has been some research showing that uh, interrupting sleep is a good thing in terms of... Uh, uh, washing uh, the nervous system through the CSF, uh, which stops during sleep. And if you interrupt the uh, sleep, uh, the washing starts again. And uh, is a very good thing for memory. Uh, these experiments were done in rats, uh, but they're very convincing that uh, sleeping long hours is not a good thing. And the interrupted sleep is a good thing. Well, Professor, I uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. This was a, an amazing tour de force, and a, um, going through your your life journey has been fascinating. Uh, and I thank you very much for being with me. Thank you for your kindness. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Sir Megdia Oub, groundbreaking cardiologist and founder of the Chain of Hope charity. If you're a member of the show, you'll get a bonus episode next week where Professor Yaoub shares his thoughts on AI in healthcare and how he wishes to see more heart centers across the most needy of countries. And if you'd like to watch extended clips from our interviews, you can find them on our new YouTube channel. You can also connect with us by searching for What I Did Next on Instagram, X, or on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Malak Fuad, and you've been listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. See you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>